Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogue. It's truly my pleasure to welcome a good friend and also a great leader in our Jewish community, Rabbi David Eliezri, to this program today. Rabbi Eliezri has a fascinating uh, bio, but he is the director of the North County Chabad in Yorba Linda in California, the Beit Mayor Akoin. He is also the former um, head of the Beit Chabad in Miami. And before that, I think the old city of Yerushalayim. He's on he's oh boy. An advisory committee of the Roar Jewish Learning in, uh, Institute, which is one of the great sources of online and distance learning in the world. He is also the key person when there's need for an international relief from Chabad. He is the representative to major Jewish organizations. And I can keep on going for a long time, but most importantly, he is one of the most creative rabbis in the country who works in internationally trying to make a difference in this world. So Rabbi Eliezri, thank you for joining me. We try to connect one Jew to another, which sometimes can be a daunting challenge. Oh, yes, yeah, it because, is. Because every Jew has their own opinion. Well, that's good. That way we have a full range of opportunities. <laughs> so let me start with the obvious. When the first time we met was actually in a meeting, I think, in the JFNA, where there was a small meeting of different heads of, of Jewish organizations. It was kind of quiet, and I got to know you. But you're in all of these major organizations. You're on the board of governors. That's a pretty big position, and you you seem to be the person from Chabad who takes that lead. Am I getting it right? You're getting it right. It wasn't what I planned, but it was what you know the divine providence brings you in different part, ways in life. And um, I began, I always felt that we had to have a broader view. And, and you know, there's a, it's a tendency among many groups, and there's also within the Chabad community of a sense of parochialism. You look at what you're doing, and you don't look at the broader picture. And I always felt that we have to look a little bit at the broader picture. And in the last 25 years or so, we, there was a series of different kinds of challenges. And I would bring these ideas to Chabad headquarters and they'd say, well, go try it. And I didn't make a terrible, I didn't make a, a total disaster out of the whole thing. And, and, and then each time it led to another sense of responsibility. And then after time goes on, you end up in, in a very surprising role that you never planned and never anticipated. But it's interesting and it's challenging. So, for instance, when the uh, war in Ukraine started. Was that something you were involved in terms of the relief effort? I, 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 just, got a, I just got off the phone with the Shliach in Zaraposa, I think the name, which is about 30 miles from Dnepo and 30 miles from the border, the, the front line of conflict. I've been very heavily in the process in Ukraine. I've been advising and working with, we, the strongest Jewish network in Ukraine today is the Chabad network. There's, we're in 35 cities with permanent institutions and serve another 100 communities. Before the war, we had 192 rabbis and rebbesons. Now it's a little bit down. Some of them have not come back. A lot of them have come back. And we have a tremendous network. And I've been very much involved in securing funding from major Jewish organizations. Primarily, we've had wonderful partners. I've been primarily involved with both the OU, the Orthodox Union has done a wonderful job of working with us. They've been true, wonderful partners. And my, my, my most important partnership that I've been working with is the Jewish federations in North America who, who, have, who have provided very significant funding for programs and activities in Ukraine. So let's go back to the JFNA. Watching, you know, watching you walk into JFNA headquarters, you're not necessarily the typical person walking in, and yet you've created these relationships over at least two major directorships, I assume. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but but you have also it's something important is that 
people, the J Jewish Federation's historical was the bastion of liberal American Judaism. But the reality of Jewish life today is things have changed. Chabad today is, I don't want to sound like a guy who's raising the flag. We are the largest Jewish organization in the world. We're in over 110 countries. Nobody else has a center in the Maldives and in Madagascar. And in many countries, our role is very, very central to Jewish life. Here in America, we play an important role. In Ukraine and, in, and, for, and the former Soviet Union, we're the dominant Jewish organization. And also, there's another important element that many of the people today that are federation leaders on two levels, both the professional staff and the supporters, have had a lot of interaction with Chabad. So key leaders have been intimately connected to Chabad, either some of the... Uh, uh, if you look at the, the donor base of the, of the federation system and the donor base of Chabad, there's a probably a 60-70% overlap. And many of the senior staff in federation have also been very involved with Chabad on a personal level, uh, you know, in their own journey of Judaism that's been encouraged along by a Chabad rabbi or Rebetzin or their interaction. They may not be wearing a beard, a yarmulke, and a hat, but at the same time, part of their identity as a Jew was because of their interaction and the inspiration they got from Chabad. And so would, would you think that, you know, once upon a time, if you said there was a Chabad house, a Chabad rabbi, you'd have a certain picture of who'd be going in there and it would be not necessarily mainstream in the non-Orthodox community. Is, has it really shifted that much? It, it has shifted profoundly and I'll tell you what's happened. If you see, you know, your synagogue is more in the urban area in Chicago, but I'm in a suburban neighborhood here in Orange County, California. And let me just tell you the demographics of Orange County. When I came here, I was some 40 years ago, 35, 40 years ago, so there was about seven or eight conservative congregations or eight or nine to reform temples. Uh, now it's fast forward. What's been left? There's one viable conservative congregation in the community, which has done a, it's It's been very successful in many ways. There is one Orthodox synagogue other than the Chabad, and there's 15 major ch community Chabad centers and uh, about eight or nine refor reform temples. So all the conservative congregations have, have closed except for one. And many of those people who were in the middle, who were somewhat traditional, but not fully observant, have, so to speak, switched their allegiances. They've come to Chabad, or a lot of them will double, will double dip, and they'll go to the local temple down the block, and they'll go to Chabad also. So we're seeing here, in fact, if you look at the Pew study, the most recent Pew study, according to the figures is like this, that 11% of American Jews are... Um, are members of, uh, what's his name, of conservative congregations, members, not, not self-identified, actually members. 14% are members of Reform. So that's 25% of American Jews. About 10% of American Jews are members of Orthodox congregations. And 38% of American Jews say they go to Chabad occasionally and 16% regularly. So today, American Jewry is in three blocks. One block is Reform and Conservative. One block is Orthodox and connected to Chabad. And the third block which is almost half or 40%, is disengaged. But among the engaged Jews today, if you walk into the normal Chabad center in the United States, 90% of the constituents are not Shabbos observant. They're not Orthodox. But they're, they want a greater sense of tradition. They're not willing to make the whole long transformation in their lives. They'll make some small transformations. But because Chabad's policy of accepting every Jew where they are and encouraging them further, we're seeing a Teutonic shift in the way American Jews are affiliating. So today, we're the Jewish mainstream. If 38% of American Jews say they come to Chabad occasionally, and half that number come to Chabad regularly, we're as big as the reform movement, or we're larger than the conservative movement today.
but it's measured very differently because there's not membership in Chabad. You're right, but the, but but you know it, you, you're 100 correct. They're not filling out a formal membership card. But if you define membership, coming on a regular basis and being active in programs, supporting your local center financially, if you just dress it up in different terms, you know, in the in the synagogue system. You pay to pray. In Chabad, you pray. And then once you pray, you pay. And you usually pay a little bit more because the rabbi will come to you and say, listen, Yankel, you have more resources than the guy down the block. And you see what's going on. And you see where you can make an investment. And every Chabad center is a local financial autonomous institution. And they see where their money is going. So they want to make that investment. So uh, you're right. It's, it, the counting is different. But when reality comes down about Jews involved and engaged, The numbers are very, very, uh, and there's one other telling statistic, which is, I think, most intriguing. If you compare the, the synagogue, number of Jew synagogues today, the to 2002, when there was a synagogue survey done by Jewish federations, the conservative movement has closed 38% of their congregations, reform 18%, and Chabad has grown by 200%. Those are simple numbers of centers. Now, some of them are bigger and some of them are smaller, but nevertheless, we're seeing a fundamental shift in American Jews that if you, that it's becoming more like European Jewry or Australian Jewry, that even though if they're not fully observant, the synagogue they go to sometime is going to be an Orthodox synagogue. So, and I think this is also bolstering the Orthodox Union synagogues at, because as the people become more observant and they decide, let's say, to move from suburbia to urban center, I would imagine that in your shul, there's probably a, a lot, a degree of people that have become closer to Yiddishkeit because of their engagement with Chabad, and they made the choice that they like your speeches on Shabbos more than local Chabad rabbis or vice versa. Now, because, and they, and they, and those synagogues are growing also. So I think we're even bolstering the broader Orthodox community. So is that why you have the seat at the table? In addition to your own natural charm and skills, is it Chabad has a seat at the table because the organized Jewish community recognizes where Chabad is at? Yeah, you know, there's an old joke that there's Jewish organizations that are looking for a mission and there's a mission looking for an organization. So Chabad is the latter and they're the former. I think that reality of Jewish life today, and you see this in, I'll give you a perfect example. In Birthright, there is a group of, uh, the Birthright has 12 organizations that run trips to Israel. The top two are Hillel and Chabad. One year Hillel is number one and they do a wonderful job. And one year is Chabad number one. And the other organizations are, some, are, are smaller. So Jews are voting with their feet. And if a college student at, at, at a university, be it Champaign or, or Portland or Harvard or whatever it may be, decides he wants to go to, he or she wants to go to Israel on a trip on birthright, he can choose from 12 different providers. Why is the great, why is the larger group of people deciding to go with Chabad? Because that's their choice that they're making. So people are voting with their feet. Things are changing. And I think as much as we're seeing numbers that are very shocking to us in American Jewish life of intermarriage and people disconnecting from Jewish life. We're also seeing a certain degree of a renaissance where Jews are connecting and the Judaism they're connecting to is a Judaism which is unabashed. And number two is also never questioning the support to Israel because central to who we are is that we want to connect Jews to Israel and we want them to be strong supporters of Israel. And we're not going to be like certain other segments of the community, which are going to weaken that connection of Jews to Israel. We're going to strengthen it. So I never asked you this. We've known each other for a while. Were you born into a Chabad family? I, I, I came into Chabad when I was 14. I went to a modern Orthodox day school 
in Los Angeles as a child. My family moved to Montreal when I was 14. The local yeshiva down the block was Chabad. So since the time I'm beginning to mature, I, I came to Chabad the first time. In fact, today is the anniversary, I don't know how many years it goes back, I guess 50 some odd years ago was the first time that I came to the Rebbe, which is today's the yard site of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. It was the first time that I ever came to New York and I encountered the Rebbe for the first time. And, um, and then my family moved to Israel and I went to Chabad Yeshiva and then I went, became a shliach and the whole nine yards. So, but I think that, um, so I, be, so my engage, my involvement with Chabad started when I was 14, when my, when the yeshiva down the block was a Chabad Yeshiva, that's where I ended up. And this is where I ended up today. And, but in those days, Chabad wasn't this big. Chabad was, I remember growing up in Chicago and we had a Chabad shul, B'nai Ruven, with Rabbi Harold Schusterman, but no one knew it was Chabad and no one knew he was really Chabad, especially since he was a Brooklyn born rabbi with an English accent, which we also never figured out. <laughs> so, so, you know, 50 years ago, Chabad was so very different. Right, but I was, I was, I would go to the high school, and every day I would go into the ba- in Montreal. There was a yeshiva with yeshiva senior yeshiva students, and I would come to learn with the boys with the yeshiva students every single day, and that built a much deeper connection because of other the other high there was other high school kids who came from varied backgrounds, and they went on to what they went on. But I connected more individually with the yeshiva students. I began to get the deeper ideas of what Hasidic philosophy has to say. I came to the Rebbe. And um, I, I, account, I had a private meetings with him and I had encounters with him and I began to become inspired. And when my family moved to Israel, I wanted to go to a Chabad yeshiva. And, and then that was the path in life that I chose. Mm-hmm. You're right. Chabad was. See, but this path, this is how growth happens. It was by individuals who are drawn to the ideas, to the ideology, to the philosophy. They see value in it and they become attached to it. And I think what happened was is that I'm sure Rabbi Shusterman sent some people off to Chabad yeshivas. And as these numbers grew, and there was a sense of appreciation for a, a, a approach to Judaism, which was, I think, very balanced. In other words, willing to engage the world, but remain true to Jewish values, deeper, a deeper spiritual mission. So more and more people like myself became connected to Chabad, and that's how Chabad grew. Now, today is the yard site of the Priyadik Rebbe, the Rebbe before the last one. Right. Was he also as open to the broader world like the seven? I, th- I think I think yeah, I am now writing his biography, and it's an amazing story of a of a of a person who adapted to challenges of twentieth century Jewry in three different settings, which is remarkable. First, in Russia, when communism came in to, in nineteen twenty, he becomes Rebbe in nineteen twenty when his father, who was the fifth Rebbe, passes away from a sickness. And he's faced with the communists who want to destroy Judaism. And all the major rabbinical figures leave Russia. And he's the last man standing. And eventually he's sentenced to death. And he's saved. And he leaves the country. And then in the interwar years, he's in Poland and Latvia. And, um, and then after, at the beginning of the war, he escapes in a miraculous story that could be a great Hollywood movie. And he comes to the United States with a dimension to change Judaism. But... He is, he's a very intriguing personality because he is really looking at the total welfare of Jews around the world. And he's operating in three different paradigms in the American experience, 
in the in the European experience and in the Russian communist experience, and each time he successfully adapts to what's happening in that in that community. And let me just tell you uh, a, a classic example. I just don't remember the name of the rabbi in front of me. He came to visit Chicago in 1929. He came to America in 1929 for almost a year after he left Russia to raise money and to embolden American Jewry. And he spends three months in Chicago. And there was a rabbi there who was connected to the Hebrew Theological Seminary. I'm sure that if I got you his name, you would rem- you'd know who the person is. I think it was is. Rabbi Ephraim Epstein. Maybe. I'm not sure. I have to go look at my... I wrote this in the book already. I just don't remember the guy's name. <laughs> and, and he comes in to see the rabbi, and the rabbi says, Vos tut Rabbi so-and-so. And he says, I'm a teacher in, in the yeshiva in Skokie. Vos tut, what is so, what, vos tut, what is so-and-so doing? And he thinks to himself, this rabbi thinks the rabbi is maybe the wharf. The, the oppression in Russia affected him, and he, the, he and 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 he says to the Rebbe, maybe you're not you're not hearing my answers. He says, I know what you do for your job, but what are you doing for Yiddishkeit? And he looks at him like I'm teaching. He says, No, you got to do more. He says, I want you to start a class in Torah portion of the week for Jews, not in the yeshiva but in a shul, and I don't want you to tell anybody I told you to do it. And 15 years later, he came to a chassid in, 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 in Chicago, 10 years later, called Yaakov Katz, who was a big chassid of the Rebbe in Chicago, and said, please tell the Rebbe I'm not his chassid, but I have given that shear ever since then, and it's been a revolutionary thing. He was very, inclu- he was, he was very visionary. He was very inclusive. And I'll tell you just one Chicago story. You have a school in, 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 in Chicago called Ari Crime Day School. Yes. It started off. Part of its embryonic development, it was part of it that laid the foundation for it, was a school called the Hebrew Parochial School that was established in the early 1940s. The Rebbe very strongly encouraged the starting of that school. And in 1946, they had a board meeting, and they were facing a crisis with the mortgage, and they were going to close down. I think the board meeting was in the Herzliya Institute. I don't know where that was, some facility. And the board members decided we're going to close down, and one of them one of the board members was this rabbi, this individual called Yaakov Katz, who was a Chabad follower, who the Rebbe had sent him a 10-page letter about what he needs to be doing for Judaism, including to strengthen this day school. And they said, we're going to have to close the school. And Katz says, you can't close the school without telling the Rebbe. So, they, so he, they, he says, hold on a minute. They had no phone. So he collects quarters from the group there, and he goes outside on the street and finds a payphone and calls the Rebbe in New York gives him a message and says, tell the board to come back tomorrow night at the same time and everything's going to be fine. He comes back downstairs and he tells them, the Rebbe said you got to come back tomorrow. They're not such a bunch of happy campers. They're going to come back tomorrow. But they figured, okay, they come the next night and there's a bunch of very fancy cars pulling up. What was this? During the three months the Rebbe was in, it was in, was in Chicago in 1929 and he visited again for a short period in 1942, he had developed some relationships with very affluent people. And they pulled up and they said, we're here because the Rebbe brought, told us to come. He called in his favors and they paid off the mortgage and saved the school. And that school today, this is, a, and we have this story documented with testimony for the people that were involved. So here you have a person who's not just, and I'll tell you the most, I'll tell you one of the most intriguing stories about the previous Rebbe. After the passing of Ramosha Soloveitchik, the great Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva University in 1941, there was a big debate about who's going to become the head of Yeshiva University. And 
the Rebbe was very much wanted, Rabbi Yosheber Soloveitchik, the Rav, who becomes one of the most influential rabbinical figures of the 20th century, and you studied with the Rav, and you know the greatness of the Rav. He wants him to become head of Yeshiva University, and there's a big debate in the board. And according to, uh, to uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik's son, Chaim Soloveitchik, and Aaron Rakepet, who's probably the greatest Orthodox historian in the world, it was the Rebbe's influence that pushed Yeshiva University, and there's more details to the story, that the Rav should become the new Rosh Yeshiva, the new head of Yeshiva University. When you think about this, it's a very intriguing story because the worldview of the Rebbe was very different than Yeshiva University. The Rebbe's Yeshivas never integrated secular and religious studies. Yeshiva University did. And, and what I think happened here, first thing the Rebbe knew the Rav because he had visited his son-in-law in Berlin and his daughter in the, in the early 1930s, and he was very impressed with the Rav. But even though it was not his institution that reflected fully his values, he realized the value of Yeshiva University, and he realized that the Rav was a great scholar and would be a, a game-changing leader for, 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 for what's-his-name, for the Jewish world. And right after he begins appointed to be the head of Yeshiva University, he sends the Rav a letter talking about the relationship between his father, the fifth Rebbe, and Rav Chaim Brisker, the Rav's grandfather. And he stresses the point that the primary role of teaching students is to instill in the Mir Shamayim a sense of awe of heaven. It's a very interesting dynamic because most of the yeshiva world looked at YU and said, ah, it's not for us. The Rebbe looked at YU and saw a great value in the institution, even if it wasn't his type of place. This broad-mindedness is really what makes him so unique and special. So I do have to make one one correction. I'm actually a Muslim from Hebrew Theological College, not Yeshiva University. So I didn't. Learn oh, it. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it. But I guess my next question is just the obvious. To me, the obvious next one. We've talked about the past. We've talked about the present. If you were imagining, whether it be Chabad or the nature of American Jewry, 10, 20 years out, what do you think would be the major changes? The good news and the bad news. I think we're going to see a greater degree of assimilation and more intermarriage. And as Jews intermarry, that's tragically, in many cases, the ticket away from Jewish life. I think we're going to see a greater depreciation. We're not going to see the end. People joke around and say that, you know, the conservative movement is coming to an end. I don't think it's coming to an end. I think you're going to see a shrinking of the conservative movement and of the reform movement. And I think you're going to see a greater emboldenment of orthodoxy and a greater amount of Jews that are either Orthodox or traditional are coming to Chabad. And in other words, this realignment that's going on right now, these three groups, Reform and Conservative, or Traditional and Orthodox, which Chabad and Orthodox, and the unaffiliated, I think you're going to see a shrinking of the Reform and Conservative, a strengthening of the Orthodox and Traditional and people connected to Chabad, and a certain reorientation of the Jewish community. And this poses for us a very big challenge. Because when the Orthodox are outside the Jewish establishment and they're the minority, they say, oh, that's what the establishment is doing. But I think that we, and I mean the we, I mean all segments of the Orthodox world, the, the more moderate, the centrist Orthodox, Chabad, and e even the yeshiva world, which is more hesitant to engage the broader society, we're going to have to take a greater level of responsibility of Jewish community, of connecting also America, supporting Israel, which is central to what our, is very important to us. And I think we're going to see this so we're going to see good news and bad news in American Jewish life. And I think we're going to see the rise of more traditional Judaism and a, and a dissipation of the more uh, the non less observant part of the community, a more disconnection on their behalf. It's fascinating. I just today heard a presentation from Professor Sachs 
from Bar-Ilan, from, I'm sorry, Brandeis University, who's the head of the Cone Center. Some of the latest statistics on intermarriage is while it's growing, that today 70% of the intermarried couples say that they're raising their children Jewish, not necessarily halachic, but, and they may not even be Jewish halachically, but that they identify those children as Jewish, which is one of the suggestions he was making is it will slow down the, the shrinkage of the conservative and reform. I, I know Professor Sachs, and I'll tell you where I disagree with him. What we're seeing among non-Orthodox Jews, which we, I deal with primarily, is a, less people are sending their kids even to Hebrew schools. It used to be Hebrew school was three times a week. Now you're lucky if it's just Sunday morning. And if you look at studies that were done by Jack Wertheimer and others, you're going to see there's a much lowering of registration of children in Hebrew schools, which are, the, which are a minimal amount of Jewish education outside the framework of day schools. So I personally think, I, I understand his theory, and I don't agree with it. And I think the facts of the ground, which I'm the frontline soldier also, I may be dealing with the Jewish agency, but on the other level, I have the frontline experience. There is some families that are going to be connected. But in general, when you see an intermarried family and you look two, three generations down the road, you fee, see a greater sense of disconnecting from Judaism. So it, it, it's an effort, I think, by Professor Sachs to rationalize a, tr a tendency which is not going in the right direction. And I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong in the long term. There will be some mitigation. And I want to tell you where the other mitigation is. A lot of these intermarriage families are also engaged with Chabad because we deal with a lot of these families. So we're going to nudge them the difference is that we're not coming to them and saying it's okay to not keep kosher or okay not to do this. We're going to go to a family and we're going to say they have a teenage kid and we're going to say, listen, why don't you go to Israel on one of our programs? Because now we have funding from sources to send kids to Israel. Or why don't you go to do this and do that? And we're going to try to move these families along. It's like I got a, a young woman last year who spent a year in Israel, but even though her father wasn't Jewish, because we connected them stronger with tradition. That's gonna happen to a degree. But in general, there's only one thing that works. It's Jewish education. And I think you, and when a Jew, we live in a Western open society where we can do whatever we want. We are living in many ways, you know, uh, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said, we live in a time that's been rare in Jewish history, where number one, we have freedom and opportunity in the diaspora. And number two, we have sovereignty in the land of Israel. It's very nice to live in a time where Jews can do whatever they want in this country, and you got in your back pocket F-35s and nuclear weapons. You know, Jews are today pretty empowered. Politically, you know, military. We're in a situation which is really remarkable. We're in a, in a, in a great time for Jews. So as much as bad things are happening, and Jews always like to fetch, you know, the Kugel isn't good, the Cholm isn't good, the pastrami wasn't good. Let's be very honest. What Sachs' analysis is really a remarkable statement. We're living in a golden age for Jews. But the only thing that's going to keep it golden is because of the choices and opportunity, I don't have to do anything Jewish unless I see the relevance of that into my life. So unless I see the value intellectually and spiritually in Judaism and what Torah has to offer, I'm going to walk away from it. Because there's many other good things, and there's three million movies I can watch on Netflix, and I can go to college, and nobody's holding me back, and I can do whatever I want to do in this society. I can be, a cap I can be the head of a multinational corporation or I can be a school teacher or a lawyer. I can do whatever I want. Judaism is only going to be important to them if it's relevant to them. And the only way it's relevant is through Torah study. And that's the real biggest challenge. If we need to invest every single dollar we have 
in Jewish education. Which brings me to the last topic. We only have a couple of minutes left. The Rohr Institute for Jewish Learning, and I just got it wrong. I know the title is a little different. How many people are using the materials that have been created? How many people? Right are now, uh, so let me give you an example. We, are the, the Jewish Learning Institute, is, created, is doing a course now called Booksmart, which looks at all the genre, genres of Jewish learning, the Talmud, the Torah, the Tanakh, the Medrash, etc. It's being offered in 500 cities simultaneously. In total, JLI classes today are being offered in 900 cities. And this is a revolutionary idea because what it's done is like this. Until now, you know, you and me had a classical yeshiva education. So we opened the page of Talmud, we read the Rashi, we read the Toysvis, we look at the Ksais, we do this, we do that. But those, that body of knowledge, unless you had an experience of building up the, the, tech, the skills of Jewish learning, is closed to you. What did the Jewish Learning Institute did? It taught us how to teach Torah to Jews who don't have that technical ability, that ability to study Torah in such a serious way. So when we, you give a course and you suddenly have an English translation of a medrash, or you're being a rabbinical sponsor, let's say you're giving a course in Jewish medical ethics, and you're pulling a rabbinical sponsor from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was one of the greatest legal authorities of the 20th century, and you're pulling a, 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 a piece of Talmud and a piece of medrash and a piece of halacha, and suddenly people are engaging classical texts in English with PowerPoints and videos and all that kind of stuff, so suddenly Jewish learning, it opens up the world of Jewish learning. So I think what JLI's most remarkable achievement was is creating a bridge between the modern Jew and the classical sources and taking a bunch of regular yeshiva students like you and me and teaching us how to teach a group of Jews who don't have that, those, that, those, that the knowledge base to open a page of Talmud or Shulchan Aruch or Rambam and to study it properly. And that is a great achievement. No, it is. And I, I do want to mention now, as we're about to close, uh, my neighbor was Rabbi Moshe Miller. He lived right across the street from me, who just passed away. He was very much mm -hmm. involved in writing many of those classes. And right. He's a star. So I just want to mention him, Zichronoli Vracha. Rabbi Eliezri, our time is up. And I wish I could do this again and again and again, because not only are you full of knowledge, but the passion you bring to this is extraordinary. <laughs> And so thank we all have to have we listen, we all have a we have a listen, if they, if God puts us into a situation, I'll finish with this. When the previous rabbi came to America, and today is again his yard site, so I think it's important to mention him. Well, I'll put it to you what he said. He wrote a, a, a group of yeshiva students who came from Shanghai after the war. And we know that in, in Shanghai during the war there was a great mirror yeshiva, there was also a smaller Chabad yeshiva. And when the students arrived in the United States, there were 35 of them that came. In 1942, I think 41, 42, he wrote them a letter and he said to them that your coming here is by divine providence and your job is to warm up the, the, the coldness of America and to bring it the warmth of Judaism. And that by divine providence, you're here. So if people like yourself and myself have been fortunate enough that, that we have had that remarkable opportunity to study Torah in, in, in its classical way, and we've been blessed with that sense of knowledge. And that's and we've been also had the opportunity to encounter great leaders of Torah that could give us the direction about what we have to do, that that's the divine providence that has put us into positions of leadership. We have to realize that we have a big responsibility and we have to act on that responsibility. 
And on that note, Rabbi, I thank you so much for your time. I look forward to seeing you at some meeting in the future in person. I'm um, going to come to Chicago. I'm coming to oh, Chicago. We're going out to Mills. You got it. We have a date. <laughs> thank you very much. Have a wonderful day, Rabbi. Thank you.